I'd say that I've never seen a case quite like this. I've never seen the defense playing with technophobia. You've likely heard about Silk Road, the online black market that became a magnet for selling and buying drugs, weapons, stolen goods, and other illegal or regulated items because it could disguise the identities of buyers and sellers. The site appeared in 2011. In 2013, it was shut down. The investigation and trials that emerged from the shutdown of Silk Road have gone on longer than Silk Road even existed on the web, and part of that is because of how complicated the story became. Berkman fellow Hassett Shah brought together a group of folks from the Berkman community to talk with someone who was uniquely positioned to discuss the legal and technical aspects of Silk Road and the greater issues of what happens when technology goes on trial. I'm standing at a busy intersection in Cambridge, Massachusetts, looking directly at the Harvard Law School. Sarah Jong is a recent graduate from here, and she's currently operating at a different kind of intersection, a space where technology, journalism, and her legal training collide to produce really well-informed coverage of cybercrime. She was in court for the Silk Road trial earlier this year and stopped by Berkman recently to talk to us about it. With this case, just because they had so much, right, they didn't have to put technology at the center of it at all. This wasn't one of those cases where you sort of fear monger and then that's it. Because there are cases like that. There's, there are, especially hacker trials, um, are very much premised on fear mongering um, and, and often do lead to absurd outcomes because of that fear mongering. In this instance, yeah, there was a little bit of like, you know, spooky, scary drugs on the internet, but there was like they had a diary to go off of. So they didn't really have to lean on Tor being spooky, scary at all. Like they didn't have to to work on like, oh, anonymity. Um, actually, the, the people who were doing the most like you never know who's who on the internet kind of stuff. That was the defense. The defense was talking about spooky, scary hackers, was talking about how you can never really tell who's who on the internet. Um, but the prosecution was trying to be as straightforward as possible. Mm-hmm. I'd say that I've never seen a case quite like this. It, I've never seen the gu- like the defense um, playing with technophobia. Like I've never seen that before, um, in, especially in a, in a high tech case like this. That was new for me. I'm Ellery, but I'm a Berkman fellow. I'm yeah. curious, like what how covering this trial in particular might have impacted your thinking on this really difficult issue of the of cybercrime and of definitions of crime and the internet and i'm thinking about it especially in a in an international context where like any government can kind of write up a cybercrime law and slap basically whatever they want under there ranging from uh, you know, unauthorized access to saying mean things about the king mm, or mm-hmm. the government. I think that one of the uncanny things about sort of seeing his entire life on display is, um, you know, you wonder what el- what kind of story could the government tell about your life using your Gmail account, your computer, your Facebook, your OkCupid. And um, and just like knowing that you're logging so many intimate details about your life, it's scary. It is scary. And it's I don't think we've quite gotten to a point in the legal system where the government will go after you for any reason and then mount this huge embarrassing trial against you for like any reason. But 
after seeing this, like, you know, you see what the government is capable of. And if someone who's very capricious wants to go after you and is in this position of power, like, they can mount any kind of case against you using your own digital footprints. Um, Like, anything can turn into an orgy of evidence. All of these technologies that, you know, are, are put out there as, like, you know, this can protect you from government intrusions and um searches and seizures and stuff like that they were they were actually a lot of them were used against him and a lot of them um betrayed him so what are you supposed to do in the face of that right just don't do anything i guess i am tim malley from the meta lab when you deal with a case like this and you, you know, on the one hand, the juries are full of people who don't know the tech and the government, whatever. How, how do you think about your audience? I've worked mostly for tech publications, so um, I expect my audience to be more sophisticated, but I'm always trying to draw in a broader audience. So I don't want to spend too much time boring my present audience. So I try to make my explanation succinct, but also um, as clear as I can. I think that there's a good deal... In, the, in trials like this, you're going to have very extensive explanations because there will be ins and outs and the defense is going to be trying to muddle things um, because they, they're working off of a conspiracy theory. The defense theory is a conspiracy theory. I don't have to be doing the job that the prosecution is doing, um, which means I can put a lot of things in a black box. I can just say PGP is a way to encrypt messages so that only your intended recipient can read them. I can say Tor is uh, a series of routers that uh, masks your activity on the internet. I think that that's clear enough. And I mean, I hope that that's clear enough. And that's about as far as I'll go. In a trial as complex as this, that it's worth reading Sarah's pieces of Forbes if you want more detailed information, a legal education could quite clearly be considered a valuable asset. There's something to be said about how quickly I was able to find the holes in my own reporting um, based on legal training because I knew I had an instinct that something was wrong because I knew procedure well enough to be able to to spot what was going on. Um, And I think that it took some of the other reporters a little longer to find that. And some of them never even reported out some of the angles that I reported out. And is it because they are unable to decipher what look like complex court documents or unwilling to do it maybe? I think, I mean, it might be both. I think in some cases it was definitely, they were unwilling to do it. They're busy with a lot of stuff and it's kind of a lot. And not all of them were doing dedicated Silk Road coverage. I was doing dedicated Silk Road coverage every day. I'm pretty used to being able to read legal documents. I'm pretty used to going through those. It's not that, I mean, it's like, it's not fun a lot of the time. Sometimes it's fun, but most of the time it's like, it's a slog. But I, I've done it before and it's like not that big of a deal to, to keep doing it. Um, so there is that to be said. I think that it's much more interesting when the training that I have is able to guide me inside the courtroom when things are happening real time. Like that's, it, that's very valuable. Being able to um, catch what's happening and find like the subtle interplay there is, um, I think, really valuable. Do you think that the journalists that you've, you've interacted with over the last few months since you started this second, first career, really, do you think there's a, 
a problem with the lack of legal training or do you think that that's something that can be overcome easily where do you stand on this um i think that you know if there's more hours in a day you don't need legal training to be able to to catch up to someone you just need to spend more hours on it on the problem but uh, a lot of hours can be saved if you just know for instance like the basic rules of evidence um criminal and civil procedure and i think this this can all be in like a 10 page primer and you can catch someone up on it like maybe there just needs to be like a, a module in journalism school um to explain to people oh this is what a summary this is what summary judgment is this is what an objection is these are this is what an in limine motion is and things like that i didn't know what they were when before i came to law school like these are you know you don't hear those words every day i sat in the row behind the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal um, and so on, I could overhear their conversation and I knew they were very off base. Like they, and these are like dedicated legal reporters too, um, or rather not dedicated, but they, they cover trials frequently. And um, they were really unfamiliar with what hearsay was and how it worked. And it meant that they were paying attention to things that were actually not very interesting. Did you help them out or did you think? Oh, no, I did not yeah, help them out. They they got they had their cell phones. I didn't have my cell phone. I wasn't about to help them out. <laughs> that sort of journalist, journalistic competitiveness. No, was, no. Yeah. I mean, I helped out other people, but I was like, not not those people. Not those people. I mean, they were being jerks to us already. So Some journalists have the privilege to have their phones and various other types of access. And mm-hmm. you, you didn't and you had to kind of hustle the system a little bit yeah it sucks it just sucks i don't think that it's good um i think it's it's a problem for journalism um especially because a lot of the people who are disadvantaged like digital publications were disadvantaged and they were the ones who were doing the the best coverage of this case because they had been following it for a long time because there was a advanced uh readership uh, at these tech-oriented digital publications so it, it's it it's not good. It's not great for democracy. Again, with your sort of legal hat on, I mean, do you see the court system changing to accommodate this anytime soon? Or, um, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that the system as they have it right now um, suits them just fine, and I don't really see them changing to grant more access to journalists. Um, I mean, there's already like a huge issue with just getting filings, for instance, like through PACER. If PACER were open, it would be a huge boon to the public. But as it is right now, it's gated and you have to pay like 10 cents a page to access it. And um, that limits journalism because sure, you can pay 10 cents a page, but it also means you can't search for one keyword in all the legal documents, which is there is a lot of analysis that you can do with the bigger pool of documents that is just not available. So I guess it's not necessarily just a journalism issue at all, is it? It's an openness issue. It's an openness issue. It's absolutely an openness issue. There's a huge openness issue, and it does affect journalism in a, in a huge way. As Ellery just pointed out, there are cases of blameless, largely blameless people around the world who get in trouble because of hastily drafted cybercrime legislation. But this year, Sarah also covered another high-profile trial here in the U.S. in which a journalist named Matthew Keyes was convicted. You had a journalist who was working for a TV station in Sacramento belonging to the Tribune Company at the time, or rather, he had been working um, and he had left recently. 
when um, he dropped the login for the Tribune content management system into an anonymous chat room, like capital A anonymous, like the the hacktivist group. Um, And he drops it in and he says, go fuck shit up. Shortly thereafter, a LA Times article is defaced. So the headline and the deck, that's the little subtitle, they both get defaced with like a bizarre message about how Chippy1337 is um, elected house leader and it's um, kind of indecipherable. Once it's caught, um, it's up for maybe 40 minutes. We're actually not entirely sure how long it was up, but after it's caught, it takes three minutes to revert it. Um, someone just goes in, rewrites the headline and the deck. He could have hit the revert button, but he instead rewrites it from memory because it's like that's how negligible the damage is. From that, a few years later, you get a prosecution against Matthew Keyes, He was like 20-something when this happened. He was very early 20s. He was just a kid. We're not talking teenager here, but we're talking like youngish, rather young. He is charged with computer hacking. And recall that he himself didn't deface the page. He dropped a login into a chat room. So he's indicted for like conspiracy and then also transmission of malicious code and um, attempted transmission of malicious code. And he's he ends up actually uh, found guilty on all three counts. This guy is not a very likable defendant because there's like a bigger story here. And the bigger story is that for the months leading up to this happening, um, he had been sending harassing emails to the Tribune company and as under like various personas. And he had actually really scared the pants off some of the people there. But that in itself, if he had stopped there, they wouldn't there wouldn't be a computer hacking case. But then he went that step further. Now there's a computer hacking case and they want to get him for all that he did. Right. So you've got the harassing emails, right? That's not computer hacking. And then you've got dropping the login into uh, to the CMS, which is like, uh, doesn't really quite seem like computer hacking. And it also does, it also seems like maybe not that bad. And you combine it together and you get something where it's like, wow, this guy sucks. And also maybe this is computer hacking. He's facing maybe five years in prison. So the maximum statutory, the statutory maximum was 25 years. And... Looking at the sentencing guidelines, um, if they go with this million dollar damage estimate, then he's facing like around five years in prison. Why is it 25 years? 25 years maximum because you've got you got 10 years for one charge maximum, 10 years for another charge maximum, and then five years maximum for the for another charge. The the five year uh, estimate comes out of one million dollars in the in the sentencing guidelines. Um, that's about five years in prison. Is there a misunderstanding in the court system about the nature of these kinds of crimes then? Because that seems excessive. This one is an interesting case because there's a lot of computer hacking cases out there where the core of the case is that it was not hacking. It wasn't unauthorized access. Like it's the, the question is like, is this an unauthorized access or is it authorized access? And that's like, um, a major question in say like you know the weave trial or like in um the aaron swartz case that that was never brought to trial in this case it, unauthorized access isn't in the statutory provisions that were cited so the big question is actually damage and loss whether 
um, loss exceeded $5,000 and whether loss is actually like somewhere around $1 million. Because if it's like just $5,000, he's going to get like probation, right? Because um, 5000 is the statutory um, minimum of damage for him to have committed a felony. Under 5000 and under means he's... It's just a misdemeanor. It doesn't seem plausible that this caused a million dollars worth of damage, though. It doesn't. And actually, a lot of that... So that's an an appeals issue. Well, first, we have to hear what the sentencing is. But the million-dollar estimate comes out of, like, emails people had to send in the wake of his harassment and, like, meetings they had to have and stuff like that. Well, there you go. This is Hasit Shah, and you've been listening to Radio Berkman. Hasit Shah is a Berkman Fellow, formerly of the BBC. You can find out more about him and his work, as well as links to Sarah Zhang's reporting at the show notes for today's episode at cyber.law.harvard.edu. And while we're talking about online platforms for anonymity, we'd like to hear your stories. Was there ever a time you used the web to be anonymous? Have you ever had a digital alter ego? If you've ever used a blog or social media account that you wouldn't want the people in your life to know about, We want to hear about it. And we've set up a special hotline to collect these. All you have to do is call in and leave a voicemail, and we'll feature you on an upcoming episode. The number is 617-682-0376. You have until the end of November to call, so do it quick. The number is 617-682-0376. This week's episode of Radio Berkman was produced by Hasset Shah from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 